Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comero. And similar to the last episode, I am joined by Ray Hallman, and we are just going to do a total deep dive on the uh, last decade, the 2010s. And we are going to pretend like Duke did not just play a game um, against a team I won't even name because I want this to kind of be timeless in sorts. It's going to be like I did a lot of the deep dive podcast over the summer when I, I just went through the history of certain positions and the way K uses them, recruiting, every type of aspect imaginable. And I did do all decade teams throughout the K era. I did an 80s team, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, as well as an all K era. Um, so I might uh, repost that, but I did want to go just a little bit deeper on this all decade team because I know with recency, it's what everyone remembers the most, so it's fresh in our minds. And I think it's great to have uh, someone like Ray who really goes deep, a, a Duke historian of sorts. So, uh, yeah, I want this to be super conversational, just go into everything, any stories uh, Ray has. I want them involved, anything about certain players, moments. We're going to go into it all, including just going down year by year, uh, random facts and figures, and uh, just superlatives, all all decade teams, everything you can imagine. So, uh, Ray, thanks so much for joining me again. And uh, what can you say? You were starting to tell me about how Duke looked coming off a loss to Villanova, which uh, has happened occasionally where Duke just kind of gets annihilated in the second half after a somewhat close first half in the NCAA tournament. So there weren't, weren't too many happy feelings headed into the 2009-2010 season. You were covering college basketball as a whole at that time. How did you view the Duke team and the situation they were in at that time headed into the 2010s? Yeah, it was uh, it was a low point for the Duke uh, program. You know, that Villanova game was in Boston um, and uh, Duke just got wiped off the floor. I mean, it just it, it wasn't a close game. You know, the final score, like I think they lost the game by 20, 23, something like that. Um, it didn't even seem that close. It was uh, it was it was just a continuation of what that era of Duke basketball um, had become come you know it was uh just a different kind of team you know leading up to that point um they were three and three in the nta tournament over the past you know dating back to 2007 so that class that came through uh seven eight nine uh well i guess six seven eight nine so you know starting after the jj reddick uh team in uh 2006 uh, which lost in the Sweet 16. But that was a team that was, you know, really strong the whole year. It was a little bit of an upset. You know, then they lost to VCU the next year in 2007. Um, it, you know, in 2008, I believe they lost to West Virginia in the second round um, in a game where uh, Joe Mazzula, the backup point guard, had like 10 rebounds, you know. It was just a, a game where Duke was just uh, out-talented, you know. So it was a different kind of thing to happen. Um, you know, coming off of what was, you know, the second – great golden era of Duke basketball from, you know, 1997 when Duke comes back with a, a 12 and four season finishes first in the ACC um, through, you know, 2004 um, where uh, Duke made the final four again with the Luol Ding team and then won a national championship in 2001, had a tremendous team in 2002 that got upset by um, Indiana, of course, had the 99 team in there. Let me add real quick, just uh, for that uh, team that lost to West Virginia in the second round, I mm -hmm. believe um, from my memory, they they actually beat Belmont in the first round on a last-second layup from Gerald Henderson, so they barely yep. squeaked by the first round. 
They did. And that's what the, the tournament was. You know, I mean, it just every year with Duke, it was this adventure. You know, you would start, you, you, you know, the headlines we were right at the time were always, uh, you know, uh, Duke, you, you uh, enter like a lion, you know, leave like a lamb, right? The reverse of the old saying about March. And that's, um, you know, that's just what Duke, <laughs> what Duke did. They just, they were teams that started out well and they didn't progress. So, you know, that was sort of the culmination. So I wrote a column, uh, you know, that weekend uh, after the loss. And I wrote about, you know, Mike Chefsky always talks about the Duke brand and the Duke brand and, you know, about how the Duke brand was the Duke brand dead. You know, was it was it was it done? You know, and of course, that that turned out to, uh, you know, age like fine milk. And uh, but at the time, it just that's what it felt like, because, you know, Duke was uh, losing on the court when it mattered uh, in in the uh, NCAA tournament. They were losing to North Carolina. I mean, they were getting they were getting handed, you know, uh, by North Carolina, they lost seven and nine in North Carolina. One of the games they won. Um, was, you know, when Ty Lawson was injured. Um, so I think they had beaten the full-strength Carolina team just once in the past nine games. Um, they were losing on the recruiting trail. I mean, it's hard to think about now, but back then, you know, they lost out on Patrick Patterson. It was a big recruit. Duke desperately needed a big man. They couldn't recruit big men. You know, uh, the Duke fan base was up in arms because Steve Wojciechowski was a big man coach, and how could, you know, point guard be the big man coach? Um, and, uh, they lost Patrick Patterson to Billy Gillespie. I mean, it just seems it's, it's, it's almost comical to think about in retrospect that Billy Gillespie, the guy who drove Kentucky to, you know, new depths of despair, um, was able to out recruit him. And of course the stories were, I promised him 20 shots a game or something ridiculous like that, but they lost there. They lost out on Greg Monroe, who was, you know, uh, reportedly, uh, grew up a Duke fan you know, wound up going to Georgetown, you know, pick John Thompson the third. You know, they had lost earlier in the decade out on Brandon Wright, a guy they really thought they were going to land, uh, turned out being a one-and-done in North Carolina. So, Yeah, you're talking about bigs. They also lost to, lost uh, Kenny Boyton. I think they were going hard for him. They were, and they lost him to Florida, um, yeah. you know, uh, with, with Billy Donovan. And, and he, was a, he was a really talented player, um, at least coming out of high school. It didn't quite live up to it in college, but – yeah, I mean they were just losing. Uh, they were just losing left and right. So the the brand wasn't there. The talent wasn't there. They were losing in so many ways. The culture wasn't great. It was just very much associated with the slow, um, untalented sort of um, group. And then you know, so they lose. They they finally start making some headway in 2009. So it wasn't entirely bad. They won the ACC tournament that year. Um, even though, of course, Carolina went on to. Well, let, let me let me quickly ask you, as someone who was more locked into the media at that time, mm-hmm. how were people reacting to the fact? I mean, Coach K, I'm not sure exact. I can't remember exactly when he accepted the job as head of the national team with the redeemed team. I mean, with 2008, yeah. they won the gold. Obviously, yep. he started before that. I think he did coach the 2016 that won a bronze in the world championships. Yep. So he was coaching the best players in the world. But yet it wasn't helping out with the recruiting and the encore performance. So how were people kind of viewing that in a sense? Well, the idea was that it was just taking too much time away from what he was doing at Duke. Right. Um, that it was a distraction. You know, people saw it as a negative. And it's interesting. You know, so everything that flips after 2010, that's one of those things, you know. Uh, in the mid part of this decade, you have the uh, Adrian Wojnarski, you know, column about how it's an unfair recruiting advantage or whatever, which is – you know, just, you know, ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, so we went from the place where everybody was talking about, oh, he's too distracted. He's not giving his full effort to Duke. There's there's too much going on to a place where, uh, you know, suddenly it's an advantage. But, yeah, I mean, that was one of the storylines is why were things not going right? You know, and it just it really wasn't. And and then, you know, as, as 2009 progressed, even though you won the ACC championship, you just wiped it all away. 
um, you know, with uh, that loss to Villanova, sort of felt like you're back to square one. And then over the summer in June, uh, Elliot Williams transfers, so you lose another young player um, who looked like he was going to be a, a very good player for Duke, you know, transferred uh, to Memphis. Um, and so it just really seemed like the Nader. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the coup de grace of the downfall of Duke that year, you know, came in November. And that was when Duke, the program savior was going to be Harrison Barnes, you know, his kid out of Iowa, the most hyped recruit. You know, we always say the most hyped recruit since X, you know, realistically, he was the most hyped recruit since Greg Oden. But Greg, he, he was the Black Falcon. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I don't know that, that he was yet, <laughs> but that's yeah, that's, you know, who he was. Um, but he was just heavily hyped. Like he, you know, the only guy, you know, that rivaled him, um, really was, uh, Greg Oden, you know, from a few years before. Um, so he's going to be the program savior. And then he has this, you know, announcement stunt on television where he Skypes in the coach and everybody's expecting Duke is going to win this. And, you know, he Skypes in Roy Williams. So yet again, you know, North Carolina beats, beats Duke, uh, when it counts. So in November of that year, um, things just could not have looked, uh, bleaker for that program, so it just it felt like you know Duke had fallen off of its 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 uh, its high pedestal. You know, it was sort of the, the progression of the way these things go. You know, you look at Indiana under Bob Knight, where you just fall off and then you never quite get back there. And that's what it looked like in November 2000. Uh, uh, you know, going to November 2009, going into the 2010 season, that it was just you know Duke had fallen off and it just wasn't going to be the same. And that's of course where you get. You know, Doug Gottlieb and his famous, you know, alarmingly unathletic uh, take and uh, and everything that entailed. But but that's where you were. It was a real nader for the Duke program. I think that is probably the lowest moment of the Mike Krzyzewski era once he got things rolling. You know, uh, 95, uh, for as bad as it was, you know, it was Pete Gaudette who was there and just the maddening small things that kept Duke from being, you know, a competitive team that year. All the overtime losses, the two-point losses. Um, you know, 96 obviously wasn't a great year. They went eight and eight, lost to Eastern Michigan in the first round of the tournament. But you just felt like there was more hope then. And of course, by 97, everything was back on track. Um, and then 98, 99, you know, the, the second golden era of Duke basketball happens. So by, you know, the beginning of the 2010 season, you're really talking about a Duke program that is struggling for an identity that is the, the nadir of its, you know, brand value, right? If we're talking about Duke as a brand. And, uh, and, and that's where we start the decade. So it's interesting. It's interesting to, to go back 10 years and just see see where we were and how quickly these things change, because they're going to go from being at the absolute depths in 2010 to, you know, I remember very specifically sitting at ACC Media Days with Kyle Singler um, in 2011 after they won the championship. The thing he kept saying, he says, you know, there's a glow about this program. Now there's a glow about this program like it just changed. And it was still going to take a while. You know, we start 2010, and it is not immediately clear that that is a national championship team. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if you want to hop into the season now, but, you know, as they went into that season, there were some devastating defeats along the way. And it was really the last um, two months of that season that changed the entire perception of how we view that 2010 team and, you know, set the stage for everything that was going to come for the next decade. I don't know. I mean, I hear everything you're saying. I didn't view it in terms of, I guess, at the at the level of depth that you're talking about because, I mean, I will also say that the ACC wasn't exactly blowing other conferences away at that point. Like, an argument I could make in terms of the 2008-2009 team, it wasn't quite like what you're saying. I mean, they won the ACC tournament 
Like, I mean, they were headed into the NCAA tournament having won it. They had gone from first-round losers to VCU to second-round uh, West Virginia to Sweet 16 Villanova. So they were kind of headed upwards. But, I mean, it, at the same time, you look at the, at the AC tournament they won. They beat teams that, I mean, in Kempom, Boston College was 74, Maryland was 55, Florida State was 39. So they weren't exactly the elite teams like you have now, maybe not this year, but typically in the ACC. But uh, I do think Duke was still among the upper elite teams. It's just K had already set the standards so high, not nearly as high as now. But they just didn't have those elite players. We always, I mean, when I did these pods more consistently um, with you, we would always talk about how you just need guys who, no matter what the situation, they're just going to get buckets. You can depend on them, just get a bucket. And that's what we're looking at with the current season, which there are some questions about that. So... That's the type of guys they were really lacking. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when Elliot, he all of a sudden kind of burst onto the scene, then he leaves. And obviously everyone's favorite, Oleg Chiz. Um, he uh, transferred in the beginning of the 2009-10 season. I was just kidding about that. He wasn't – I mean, he's great. He actually played pretty well at Nevada. So hey, I, should, I shouldn't even say anything. That, I mean, he, he, he just wasn't getting playing time. One of those Duke's summertime legends, you know, every summer. You know, I guess it was two summers that, that he was on the roster – um, going into his freshman year and then going into his sophomore year, I believe. And uh, you would always hear reports, you know, out of the out of the uh, college leagues around uh, uh, Durham that uh, you know the Duke and the Carolina and and uh, you know the state kids would all play in. Um, and uh, every time you heard Oleg Chiz, he's going to be the guy. It's going to be him this year. And uh, yeah, you know that's why you always have to take those things are like spring training, you know, best shape of my life kind of things. You just can't pay too much attention to them. I think Marty Poch is is about to break out this season. Yeah, those calves. Um, All right, and uh, and then also another thing where they actually did kind of it was it was not a uh, a a wonderful life with Greg Paulus at point guard, and they did they they were trying different things. Nolan Smith after well his uh, sophomore year they tried him at a point guard didn't quite work out, and a big move was him staying. That isn't exactly 2010's decade, but when Johnny Dawkins left for Stanford, he actually told. Nolan Smith, who wanted to come with him, no, stay, honor your commitment to Duke. So he stayed, and towards the end of the 2009 season, they did find something with Nolan Smith and John Shire. I think Smith was still coming off the bench where when Elliott Williams started alongside Shire, but Shire was the point guard. When we talk about how Trey Jones, he ended last season as point guard and began this season as point guard, that's the first time that's honestly happened since Shire who ended the 2009 season as point guard and started the 2010 season as point guard. That's how crazy the lack of continuity has been at point guard. So that was something to look for going into 2010. But before we go down season by season, let's just talk overall. How do you feel the 2010s? What are some major, major things? If I'm just uh, some casual college basketball fan or even someone more in depth, what am I going to remember about Duke in the 2010s in terms of what stands out? Well, at the obvious at the high level, you won two national championships. So, you know, you're always going to remember those. That is that is ultimately the bar, right, that every team is going to be measured by. But I think, you know, this decade is really about just the immense uh, talent uh, that came in uh, to, the, to, to the program, uh, all the freshmen that came in. You know, one stat that I always cite, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'll give you the general gist of it. You can search my Twitter feed and you'll see it a time or two. 
But uh, coming into, uh, you know, Jabari Parker's freshman year, Duke had, uh, I believe it was three players that had ever, three freshmen that had ever scored 30 points in a game. Uh, JJ had done it twice. Johnny Dawkins had done it once. And um, looking quickly to see if I can find who the third one was. And oh, Kyrie. Kyrie had done it, right? So, you know, um, in this decade. But Kyrie had done it in that Michigan State game that was so phenomenal. Since the Jabari Parker year, um, it's been done, let's see, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. It was 26 uh, coming into this year, and we've already had uh, an addition to that. Um, so, you know, that just shows you the kind of talent that you had. So it happened three times before. I think it's happened 24 times since then. Um, so I think, you know, when you look at Duke this year, it's really about the amount of talent that started coming in. And then, again, changing the direction of the brand. The brand was going in the wrong way. The program was heading in the wrong direction uh, coming into this. And then, you know, the Jabari Parker um, recruitment, you know, as much as he may not be remembered super fondly by Duke fans or, you know, or not at least among the pantheon of like the great, you know, players of this decade – um, his recruitment really changed a lot of things. It changed the perception of Duke. It made it a destination um, for top talent again. And I think that, you know, really is what you're going to look at. And the other high-level things, of course, you know, Mike Krzyzewski sets the all-times win record. Uh, then Mike Krzyzewski becomes the first coach to win 1,000. And then, you know, Mike Krzyzewski becomes the uh, all-time winningest college basketball coach, um, regardless of division. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of career triumphs um, for, uh, for Mike Krzyzewski there. But I think the high level, you're thinking of championships and you're thinking about talent that came into this program. Okay, so I have six things. Number one, pretty much just sum it all up with K because K, with all the records he set, with uh, everything that you mentioned. I mean, that's pretty much just, hey, he's Coach K. Number two is uh, Jeff Capel. Jeff Capel changed everything. You talk about the recruiting um, when it was going on. I mean, Johnny Dawkins was great, but... It really, it really did fall off, and there were certain types of recruits they were getting. I'll go more into that in a little bit in terms of the specifics. I mean, it was just – I mean, you didn't even mention John Wall. They tried for John Wall, which is still weird how he kind of says Duke didn't offer him. I mean, it's – they officially offered him, so that's yeah. not even a question. But uh, it, it, they just weren't looked at, as you uh, said, as a school that NBA talent, like a ready NBA-ready talent – would want to go to in terms of being able to showcase their skills. Uh, Duke was known as a school besides those couple years with uh, Jay Williams, Dunleavy, and Boozer, and uh, I guess a little bit before that with uh, Brand, where guys were just immediately allowed to showcase their abilities, kind of that, um, you could say, military mentality of K, where you have to earn your stripes. You're not just going to be given a lot of uh, reign. So... I think uh, – I don't know if Capel convinced Kay to uh, expand the recruiting net a bit or what. But, I mean, Capel came from – he had some issues towards the end of his Oklahoma tenure. But he did get Blake Griffin. And he started the trend of being able to kind of combine the, uh, the guys who would stay longer with some one-and-dones. And then it obviously changed a lot. But I'll say Capel, he really was able to expand the recruiting net. Then, as you said, uh, Jabari. I mean, Jabari was huge. Just getting a guy from Chicago like that, I mean, that kind of was a, uh, a message to everyone. 
hey, it's okay to go to Duke. I'm not saying this is someone who knows the inside stuff, but it just seemed like that really helped Duke get a different type of player. Mm -hmm. Next is the the 2014 class for the 2014-15 team, where that started the whole trend of kind of guys recruiting their friends, and they would almost recruit themselves to a point. So if you could get one, it would just start the flood, because 2014 to 2018 is just, it's still, I don't think any team, any program will ever see a recruiting cycle like those five years. And number five, I'm going to say this right now and just give a couple facts about him. Well, first, shout out to... uh, because these are guys who are a little bit under the radar. Shout out to Jose Fonseca, head trainer, and head performance coach Will Stevens. Because there's going to be a lot of information I give, I don't want to forget those. They've had a huge impact. But David Bradley is not a name many people know. And it's understandable because he's i mean, he's been a part of the team for a couple decades, but he's not just a name that's talked about a lot. David Bradley, he basically streamlined the social media for Duke in 2016. He's been with them for a lot longer. He did the Duke Blue Planet, everything like that. But it started in 2016. I mean, to this point, I mean, they have over 4 million followers on social media. It's the most followed program in college sports um, in uh, for Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that. It has a larger social media following. Than, I'm reading this off the Duke site. I'm not just saying this from memory. It has a larger social media following than over half the major U.S. pro franchises generates over 45 million in brand value each year on social media. It's uh, in 2018-19 became the first college program to generate 1 billion impressions through social media. First college program to reach 2 million followers on social media. 1 million followers on Instagram had more Instagram followers than all other college basketball conferences combined. First college program to reach 100,000 followers on YouTube. I mean, I mean, it just keeps going on and on. And I will say this, for me, I, I, I'm not positive, but I think for you as well, it doesn't have a huge, that's, that part of the game, the program and everything, it doesn't have a huge influence on us. But in terms of the influence it has on generating Duke a lot of fans, and until recent years, I really couldn't, I, I, I did, I just, call me ignorant, I didn't realize how impactful it was on recruits. I mean, there's recruits that say they look at the uh, social media account and just the whole brotherhood aspect of that. That's a big reason why some of these recruits choose Duke. So I'm not into a lot about the recruiting. I'll give some recruiting facts, but that part of what goes on, I mean, I consider it all like blue chips. (laughs) So I'm not huge into that, but with David Bradley is someone who completely out of the public eye, he's changed a lot and he's had as big of an impact as you could say, anyone not actually sitting on the Duke bench. So I want to give him a little credit there. Had you known the name before I mentioned him? Yeah, I, uh, I, I did. Um, you know, uh, fine Ray, I guess you're just smarter than everyone. Okay. <laughs> having, having been around, uh, the program, yes, I, uh, I, I, I did know, uh, did know, did know him. Um, you know, and it's, it's certainly important. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things that feeds off. So even like Capel, you know, it's important that you change things, but, at the end of the day, you're selling the Duke brand. You're selling a lot of Mike Shashevsky. You know, Shashevsky is always the closer. That brand is always the closer. Um, so you start with a with a pretty good with a with a pretty good uh, pretty good base there uh, to build off of. And uh, you know, and I think that's that's something too. It's important is you know that you know David Bradley and the and the you know creative team is 
uh, done a great job keeping Duke relevant in the social media era. But it's also interesting. Mike Krzyzewski has remained relevant in the social media era. He hasn't been painted as this, you know, guy who's lost it, who's, you know, uh, just tilting at windmills from the bench or, you know, doing the uh, shaking his fist at clouds, right, for a more modern uh, uh, Simpsons version. Um, you know, uh, he's really still someone that, that – players look to you know the relationships that he cultivated you know with the team usa have really made him you know relevant to where he has those relationships with lebron and and the players like that and um you know he still has that social currency at um you know mike krzyzewski is uh 73 right now it'll be 74 in february i think so uh you know that really says something for uh for what he's done above and beyond the accolades to to retain that level of social currency um you know, uh, that, that you can build platforms like, uh, you know, the Duke Blue Planet and, um, you know, the Brotherhood and all those things off of. Yeah, and uh, I do want to stick mostly to basketball, but I did think everything involving the social media and just how K's adapted to, I guess, different generations. I mean, even like during the 2015 tournament, they were like advertising like how it was kind of a joke, like him and Justice Winslow were like texting <laughs> back and forth and K was learning about emojis and stuff. Yep. I mean, it, it has an impact on everything. So I thought that was very worth uh, giving recognition to. One of the things you always have to remember about Mike Shefty, one of his truisms that he says time and time again is, you know, I don't believe in rules. I believe in standards. And this is that's the same kind of idea. It's not about doing it one specific way. It's about, you know, upholding a certain standard and, and achieving that result. And you know, that's kind of the way he's, he's adaptable and. And uh, these sorts of things, it retains a social currency because it's not about this is exactly the way I'm doing it right now because this is how I did it with Tommy Amaker and Johnny Dawkins. Um, you know, he is able to to adapt and uh, and and relate to to the kids. All right. So uh, first, a, a stat that doesn't necessarily relate to uh, the decade. I just saw it recently, and I I think it's worth mentioning just for fun because uh, Coach K right now he has a thousand seventy wins all. Other Duke head coaches since the program began in 1913, 18 head coaches, have 1,117 wins. So he is technically 47 wins short. So uh, he it's Coach K versus all 18 other Duke coaches. It's kind of remarkable. 47 more. Anyway, yeah. all right, let's go into uh, the, the decade. How many wins do you think, uh, if you just had to guess off the top of your head, how many, how many wins do you think he had during the decade or Duke had? Uh, so like including 2009 or including this season or Ten not? Years. No, no, we're not, we're not, I'm including 2009 to 2009, 2010 through 2018, 2019. Uh, I would say 290. Very close. I mean, if, if he's going to win, I mean, 30 a season is kind of the expectation at this point. He damn near did it. His yeah. record is 299 and 70. 81 win percentage, 155 and 11 at home, 59, 39 on the road. ACC, you want to you want to give that a shot? Now, I will say that 2000, 2010 through 2012 or was it 2013? I know they they had the 16 game scheduled and they upped it to 18. Which was the year yeah. they changed? Uh, I think. Uh, I think you, it was three seasons. So I think uh, in 2013 it was changed. If I'm correct, look this up. Uh, so this definitely changed by 2014. 2013 was an 18 game season. Yeah, okay. so, so yeah, three seasons. So uh, how many how many wins do you think he had in ACC? ACC wins um, 120. Are you including tournament? No. 
120. Oh, you're almost you're almost uh, almost dead on. He's a hundred and thirty and forty four. Yeah. Home seventy six and eleven. Away fifty four and thirty five. Non conference home before postseason. Oh, this sounds this sounds so wonderful now, and it's not quite <laughs> it's not quite the same. Seventy nine and zero. Yeah. Uh, non conference away before postseason. This this one uh, there's not many. Uh, five and six. They didn't. Uh, I mean, we've gone through this many times about how. He played a tough ACC schedule. He just he didn't want to deal with scheduling um, on the road. And uh, two of those games, actually, one was at kind of UNLV, but not at UNLV. It was when UNLV was just down in the dumps, and it wasn't even at their home court. So that was one. And then they actually they count a game that was played at UNCG. So uh, so two of those away games weren't even like, I don't know. They did. But, so not only was it a game at UNCG, that was the game where he passed Dean Smith. I covered that game, too. It was almost this time of year. Um, in, uh, I guess it was the 2011 season, man, they all kind of runs together. So it would have been like December of 2010. Um, but yeah, that game was at UNC. They played UNCG on their home court. So UNCG plays at the Greensboro Coliseum, you know, same thing with, I don't know what the Las Vegas, I don't actually remember them playing UNLV, but they play at T-Mobile arena or whatever, whatever they have an on campus thing. And then they also play at uh, T-Mobile. Um, but yeah, I'm actually surprised, frankly, that Duke played 11 true road games. Obviously they play more than that, but you know, with all the, the challenge games, they tend to have a lot of neutral court uh, environments in there. Um, so, frankly, I'm actually surprised they played 11 true um, road games. You know, you remember some of them, they got walloped by Ohio State on the road um, and uh, lost to Wisconsin in the championship season on the road. It's the first time they lost in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, I think. Um, but uh, it's hard to remember. Uh, it's hard to remember uh, 11 true. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically. I mean, I have it all written down specifically, yeah. but like, I think like four of them were in the ACC Big Ten. I think like another uh, three were against like St. John's, and maybe like another one was against Temple. So, yeah, St. John's. Uh, oh, and uh, of course Georgetown. They played Georgetown true road game. Uh, but uh, I mean, it was after Christmas, but they played true road game in 2010. Um, yep. you know, again, one of those turning point games. All right, and uh, so yeah, five and six away, uh, non-conference away, uh, neutral before the postseason. 40 and 6, 86.9%. ACC tournament record, 19 and 6, 76%. NCAA tournament record, 26 and 8, 76.5%. So it's kind of remarkable that the ACC tournament, NCAA tournament, it's about the same thing. I mean, they're winning three out of four. It's pretty unbelievable, especially since, I mean, the ACC tournament, they're getting a uh, bye most of that time. So they're playing a team that's uh, coming off a win. Champions Classic, they're 5 and 3. ACC Big Ten Challenge, 8 and 2. Preseason tournaments, 22 and two. They uh, won eight tournaments and lost two tournaments, including the uh, the most, the last one of the decade, Manly Invitational against Gonzaga. Oh. Um, overall, they were undefeated at home in 2010, 2011, 2014. They were undefeated away in the ACC. This is one of the odder stats. Uh, in 2012, they finished undefeated in the ACC that year. Thank you, Austin Rivers. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and the Duke ACC results. I mean, they tied for first one time. That was with. Can you remember the year they tied for first? Who did they tie with? I mean, North Carolina in twenty. Well, so in, did they tie in twenty eleven? You know, here's another story about twenty eleven. So I, North Carolina wound up as the number one seed in the ACC tournament that year, um, and that was Tyler Zeller. You know, it was a very good team. Uh, of course, Harrison Barnes had come in. Um, that ACC media day in twenty eleven. 
Um, everybody, Duke was a defending national champion, and they were bringing in Kyrie, and they had only lost John Shire uh, from the team the year before. Um, and uh, and Seth Curry put it for uh, and yeah, and Seth Curry was was eligible to play. Um, but people didn't look at that as like a big deal. He's just coming from Liberty, and like it, it, it was it was a nice transfer, but you didn't know what he was going to do. Um, so. Uh, everybody in the room voted Duke the preseason uh, uh, champion that year, except one guy. And the head of AXMA, ACC Sports Media Association, was so surprised he went and found the guy and said, look, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do Are you sure you want to pick North Carolina to win this thing? And the guy said, yeah. And lo and behold, who wound up as the number one seed in the ACC tournament that year, it was North Carolina. <clears throat> so, you know, it tells you a little something about the value of those preseason predictions. Actually, that wasn't the year. Um, I mean, Duke was uh, predicted that year, but uh, that was actually the first year of the decade because that is the last year that Duke, I mean, technically, I mean, they tied, but they were the regular season. I know, I know, everyone, like, the the only true AC championship is the uh, tournament. I understand, yep. but I will say that's the uh, only time, technically, they at least got a share in the decade, and that was with Maryland. Yep. So, and they had played that great game at the end of the year that Maryland won here in College Park. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was great as Vasquez. It was, it was a heck of a Maryland team. You know, it's unfortunate no one remembers that Maryland team, really, because they got knocked off by Draymond Green and Kalen Lucas with that uh, that three-pointer. You know, it wasn't at the buzzer, but it was dang near at the buzzer. In a, it was at the Corey Lucius. It was at the buzzer, yeah. All right, Corey Lucius, not Kalen. But Kalen Lucas was on that team, right? But uh, they made that pass, and Draymond Green had to duck under it, you know, and that's when Tom Izzo was calling him Tragic Johnson. And uh, anyway, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was that was a heck of a game. And Jordan Williams was on that team; was a great post player for Maryland, and it's a heck of a team uh, that uh, nobody remembers because they lost in the Sweet Sixteen. I mean, for I mean, full disclosure, I mean, uh, Maryland is my kind of my second team. I know most Duke fans can't ever believe that. Um, with the uh, the wonderful, friendly. Uh, quote-unquote rivalry uh, Duke had with uh, Maryland during a certain period of time. But, yeah, so I always follow that extra closely. And that uh, 2010 Maryland team, I mean, Gravis, I think he's misremembered a lot in terms of, like, like hating Duke. He actually, he was, like, in love with Coach K. He All he did ever did was compliment him and say he's the greatest coach ever, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, he really had a lot of respect for Duke and Coach K. Gravis was awesome. Gravis was awesome. I think he's still mostly – I think Duke fans mostly like – you know, he had the one comment where he said Cameron is my house or whatever when they beat him. And I think at the time that, you know, touched <laughs> some nerves. But I think by the end of his career, you just had to respect the guy. I mean, he was a heck of a player. He played with such joy, you know. It's, there's something to be said for guys who just love the game and you just see that joy when they play. Like even a guy – like it's great to watch LeBron. He is a wonderful player. But you, sometimes you – like guys who have that much pressure on them or something, you just – you miss that joy. It's like Zion. He was a great example of that. It's a guy who just played the game with such joy. You know, you just can't help but, in, uh, you know, appreciate uh, a guy who plays like that. And Gravis Vasquez was the same way. That guy played with joy. He was a, he was a tremendous player to uh, – tremendous player to watch. And I think, yeah, I think he had a tremendous amount of respect for the Duke program. I think, uh, you know – Yeah, and I wouldn't say it about Zion technically, but some of those guys who kind of just – they play free – a lot of there's a lot of ups and downs with them, but at the same time, it's so it's so fun to kind of watch and appreciate what they're doing. A guy who kind of was the uh, ultimate of that in the, the decade is I would say Russ Smith. <laughs> Russ yeah. Smith was so up and down, but man, he was fun to watch. Yeah. 
All right, so uh, Duke finished, uh, like I said, tied for first once in 2010, mm-hmm. tied for second five times, 2011, 12, 13, 15, and 18, tied for third, I mean, I'm sorry, third once, tied for third once. When, when they were third alone, that was last year, 2019. When they tied for third, that was 2014, and tied for fifth twice in 2016 and 2017. One of the things you mentioned about uh, preseason predictions, I somehow couldn't find the 2010 preseason media poll, but uh, in the, in Duke was picked to win in six of the other nine seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media correctly predicted UNC in 2012 and 2016 and incorrectly predicted NC State in 2013. But <laughs> uh, in six of the other nine seasons, they predicted Duke, and uh, yeah, they were not right any of those times, unfortunately. Well, it depends on if you're forecasting the regular season results or the ACC tournament, you know. Oh, what, you know they were forecasting the That's what is for the regular season. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, it's, it's it's yeah, those preseason predictions don't have a lot of weight. It's really hard to tell, you know, what you're going to get. I mean, think about it last year. We did a preseason pod where we are talking about, uh, you know, why did Kobe Simmons get votes over Nassir Little? You know, and how foolish did that look by the end of the year? You know, because at the time it, it seemed kind of foolish because Little was so great in the, uh, you know, in the in the All Star games, and um, you know, Kobe wasn't there, and uh, and then by the end of the year, of course, uh, you know, he was he was one of the best point guards of the decade. Oh yeah, I wasn't uh, kind of cutting on the media. It's just it's random. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the bottom sure, line. Yeah. It is random. Sure. So sure. Um, yeah, is. I mean, I, I'm I think I am if I've seen. A player and can I feel confident and project I can do that I mean somebody like Devin Vassell like he would I've predicted like the most improved player like last year I predicted Jordan Noir would be Devin Vassell but like in terms of teams there's just it's dependent on so much and especially college kids or young men where like who knows they break up with a girlfriend one day if one guy isn't like all in the whole team might shut down so you just yeah. never know and with Duke, of course, it's been health. I mean, how many of those years would the prediction have been right if Duke had a decent amount of health? You know, it, it seems I haven't run any numbers on this, but Duke has been um, disproportionately affected by uh, key injuries throughout the year. I mean, just think about 2011, of course, with Kyrie doesn't play a single game in the ACC. You know, how does that you know, how does that how does that season turn out differently if he plays the full year? So, yeah, I mean, there's three seasons where we'll get into that. Um, all right, so the ACC tournament, they're 19 and six. They won in 2010, 2011, 2017 with the four and four days in 2019. Uh-huh. In those tournaments, they uh, Singler, Nolan Smith, Kennard, and Zion were uh, the MVPs of those tournaments. Uh, runner up in 2014, lost to UVA. Uh-huh. Semifinal in 2012, 15, and 2018. I mean, that semifinal against Notre Dame in 2015, that was right after they had. Uh, kind of exacted their revenge in, in a way against NC State. NC State beat them early in the yeah. year. Duke came back and just ran them. And I think there's a chance. I don't try to kind of armchair psychology these guys much, but there's a chance they might have kind of gotten a little bit uh, high on themselves. And Notre Dame, they quickly – I mean, Duke almost actually came back against Notre yeah. Dame. But Notre Dame came out real fast against Duke. It was kind of an earlier start somewhere. I don't know if it was noon, but if not, it was close to noon uh, the next day. And you could just see, like, Duke was locked in for the NCAA tournament right after that. They weren't going to let it happen again because I think Duke did get a little high on themselves when they uh, blew NC State off the court. So yeah, I think I, that was a big-time loss. I agree with you there. I thought, you know, going into that game, I said, you know, if Duke could beat NC State here, I think this is a Final Four team. Because it's another team that you didn't – you didn't – 
you didn't feel like they were absolutely going to be this dominant force in the NCAA tournament. They were, but that game, I think, I think it actually wasn't early. I think it was the later game because Duke was a lower seed. I think they played after Carolina. So not only had they beaten NC state, they had just watched Carolina lose. I think for the first time that year, they had played uphill, you know, basically since those two blowout losses against NC State and uh, Miami in January, they'd really played uphill for a long time and lost to Notre Dame, too, along the way. Um, and I thought I felt like and again, you know, I, I don't like to do the soft narrative stuff either, but it felt like that was the first time they sort of started believing their clippings. They took their foot off the gas a little bit after Carolina had lost, after they had exacted their revenge and uh, didn't have that level of intensity. I think that loss, you know, in terms of most important losses of the decade, that might be one of them because that really, you know, again, I am never one of these guys who said, oh, you got to have a loss. It's great to have a loss. Like, it's foolish, right? You play to win the game, uh, as Herm Edwards would, would tell you. Um, but I think that loss, um, in some ways, just just allowed them to reset and uh, really Did you say they, lost, they watched uh, North Carolina lose? I thought that Carolina— Okay, so that, that, that's good, though, because it means we're both horribly wrong. Um, because it, you're absolutely right. It was the later game. It was 9 o'clock at night after Virginia played North Carolina, and North Carolina did win that game. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, good good for us. Yeah. Good for us. Well, uh, <laughs> the point of it, I think, still remains, though, that no, they yeah, you're up, up until that moment. And then after that, uh, after that game, that was— you know, that was a little bit of a letdown. And then after that, they were they were locked. And that was a great, you know, a Notre Dame team. You remember that team should have beat Kentucky in the Elite Eight. You know, that they played a great game against Kentucky at every right to win that game at the end. Uh, and, of course, they just came up just a little bit short. Kentucky played great defense at the end. They had a chuck and a prayer, you know, that would have won it and, uh, and and didn't hit it. But it's one of my favorite NCAA tournaments of the decade. Uh, tournament games of the decade. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And that Kentucky team, that was that was a. I mean, three of the best teams of the decade, in my opinion, were in the uh, Final Four that year in terms of Wisconsin, Duke, and Kentucky. Yeah. Um, so 2016, they lost uh, in the quarterfinals game two. Uh, and, and lastly, 2013, that was the only year of the decade where they lost the first game of the AC tournament quarterfinals. That was the Des Wells game when yep. Des Wells just went off on them. Yep. All right, so the NCAA tournament – they were the number one seed four times, 2010, 11, when they lost to Zona, 15, and uh, 19, when they lost to Michigan State in the Elite Eight. So they won the championship twice, lost in Sweet 16, lost in the Elite Eight. Number two seed four times, 2012, Lehigh, 2013, Elite Eight to Louisville, 2017, round of 32 to South Carolina, out South Carolina in 2018 against Kansas. They were the number three seed one time, 2014, lost in the round of 64 to Mercer. They were the number four seed once, 2016, lost Sweet 16 to Oregon. Head-to-heads. Is there anything, like, is there any team you feel, before I kind of quickly go down this list, is there any team you feel like Duke did really well against or didn't do, like, I'll say this, who do you think Duke had uh, the most wins against? Because, uh, I mean, this depends because, like, it's the team they would have to play the most. Now you never know how many times a team is going to play another AC team this year. So it's it's kind of a tricky thing. But uh, who do you think they have the most wins against in the decade? Uh, uh, I mean, I would, so it, it almost has to be one of the permanent partners, right? And it's probably, you know, you, it's clearly not going to be North Carolina because, uh, you know, the Carolina put up some good games at the end of the decade. I mean, I would guess it's not North Carolina. Who is Duke's permanent partner besides UNC? Wake Forest, isn't it? So oh, Okay, then, yeah, yeah, you're right. Wake. It is Wake. 
They yeah. finished uh, 17 and one in the decade yeah. against Wake Forest. Yeah, which is kind of crazy because they played some bad games, but they've just been some bad. You know, Wake Forest has just been on a, a downward trajectory. You know, Skip Prosser had him back up. Uh, Dino Gaudio took over. He had that one, you know, great team that hit number one in the nation. And I think that was I think that was 2009 was the year that they um, had uh, Teague and uh, Alfarik Aminu and who else was on that team, you know. So, the, you know, they had really good uh, – really good team that year and then it's just it's been all all downhill and you know danny manning is seems seems uh hell-bent on uh driving that program into uh irrelevance all right so let me quickly roll through his list uh 17 and 1 against wake 15 and 9 against unc 3 and 1 in the ac tournament 0 and 2 without zion 1 and 0 in a game winner with zion uh, 12 and 1 against Georgia Tech, 12 and 4 against Virginia Tech, 1 and 0 in the NCAA tournament. I think Virginia Tech, because of the three most recent losses uh, before this season at uh, Virginia Tech, I think everyone thought like it was just Virginia Tech always had Duke's number. But you can see overall, not quite the case. 12 and 4, 1 and 0 in the NCAA tournament, 11, 11 and 1 against BC, 11 and 2 against Clemson, 11 and 3 against Virginia, 11 and 5 against NC State, including NC State actually has uh, beaten Duke two out of the last three, 10 and 4 against Florida State, 9 and 5 against Miami. And uh, uh, Duke has won the last two, and they're 5 and 5 in the last 10, which goes to show Miami was actually doing really well against Duke before then. Um, 8 and 1 against, <laughs> against Michigan State, so that's interesting. Uh, 2 and 1 in the NCAA tournament. Um, eight and three against Maryland. Maryland technically has taken two out of the last three, and I don't know if Kay ever wants to play them again. Uh, seven and four against Cuse, one and in the NCAA tournament. Six and one against Pitt. Six and uh, three against Louisville. Uh, six and five against Notre Dame. And it, that is, they've won the last five because they they had dropped five of the last six before then. Two and two in the ACC tournament. Four and two against St. John's. Three and zero oh against Michigan. Three and zero oh against Indiana. Uh, three and one against Temple, two and one against Kentucky, two and one against Georgetown, and two and zero oh against UConn. I'm only listing them because they had previously lost the four games against UConn, and I hate them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, and uh, then we go to uh, they're one and three against Kansas, including lost the last three. And remember, this doesn't include this year. This is just that decade. Mm-hmm. O- o and two against Zona, and then I guess you just have to say O and one against Mercer, Lehigh, and South Carolina. So, do any of those surprise you in terms of, I guess? the extent of how many Duke won or just anything? Uh, I, I, I guess not. Um, you know, when, when you have a, uh, a head to head against North Carolina, uh, that's that generally positive. That's always, uh, something that you go into the year, you know, it's always one of the goals is to, to beat North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, when you think North Carolina can't even make a top 10 game, uh, when, uh, games won against Duke in a decade and they play each other at least twice a year, that's pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, yeah, NC State and Miami, those are teams that were uniquely able to take advantage of Duke's, you know, s- slowness to adapt to the evolution of pick and roll uh, in college basketball. I think as you, as you saw more and more of that come into the college game, like Duke was still extending his defense way too far out. They were hard hedging the hell out of everything, um, you know, so they changed the way that they played uh their defense against uh pick and roll uh as the decade went along but particularly early on they were able to take advantage and then you know again dennis smith you know whenever we get into the uh 2017 season when you talk about worst decisions of the decade uh you know maybe the single worst coaching decision of the decade was the way they played dennis smith in the final four minutes of that game 
Um, but, uh, you know, otherwise it's just, you know, Duke's a strong program, you know, as, uh, as, uh, as Quinn Cook said, which I think we could, you know, be the tagline for the decade, you know, Duke is never the underdog and, uh, you know, those numbers, uh, more or less bared out. All right. Uh, yeah. And they, uh, went to what do they call it? Cameron North MSG a bunch of times yep. and including those times there were some records set. I mean, I guess, uh, this year there was the most wins as number one team, but this year isn't technically in the decade. Uh, they did, he did set the total uh, Division One history wins uh, past Bobby Knight 2011 against Michigan State there, as well as the well, I, Coach K 2K game 2015 against St. John's. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, were you going, one what were you saying? No, I was saying the Bob Knight, it was interesting when he passed Bob Knight. Bob Knight was there. He was calling the game for uh, ESPN. They were playing Michigan State, and, of course, Bob Knight wore a green sweater to watch his – pupil you know star pupil eclipse him and uh and uh play michigan state so it just seemed like a did that break there i know there was a kind of an icy period for a while when i think there was one year i can't remember exactly which year that that duke beat indiana pretty bad when he was still coaching there and like he wouldn't even like talk to k for a while was it still going on at that point in time and it broke the ice or was that after no i think that was long since in okay. the past. i don't you know, and it's sort of one-sided. I, I think, you know, uh, I think uh, Knight holds grudges um, oh, more than, uh, than Mike Krzyzewski does. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, you know, Bob Knight, he's the guy. You know, he's the reason that uh, that uh, that Mike Krzyzewski is a Duke. You know, he's the one who gave him the glowing recommendation. He has all my positive qualities and none of my negative ones, which, uh, you know, is uh, which is a hell of a thing to say for a guy who at that point was, you know, two-time national champion and had coached an undefeated team and, you know, on top of the basketball world. There was uh, five seasons when, at least at a certain point in time, Duke was ranked number one mm-hmm. in the AP and the coaches poll. And remember, the final polls are released before the conference tournaments. Mm-hmm. And there were five seasons that they weren't. You want to you try to uh, uh, name the seasons that Duke was never ranked number one? Uh, boy. All right. Well, uh, in either of the polls? Right. So coaches poll comes out after the tournament. So you can take out 2010 and 2015. Although I think they were one, they were definitely one in AP in both of them before the season, um, started. So it wouldn't really matter. What'd you say? They come out after, no, I'm I'm saying they, they, the final one is released, uh, before the ACC tournament. So they start immediately when the season starts, or maybe I just misunderstood. The AP poll, the last AP poll comes out before the NCAA tournament. It comes out that Monday. Right. Um, and then the coaches poll, the last coaches poll comes out after the NCAA tournament. So whoever wins the tournament is almost always number one in the coaches. Okay. Poll. Well, then let me say that uh, um, pre pre conference tournaments. So from the time the season starts to the to the conference tournament time, that's the schedule I'm going by. Okay. Um, all right. So you're looking for five seasons in which they were number one at some point. Where, where they were not number one. But they were not number one. All right. Uh, I would imagine 2012 they were not number one. Correct. Um, they were in 2013, I would imagine. They beat Louisville in the uh, Battle for Atlantis that year. Um, uh, 2014 they probably were not number one at any point. That is correct. Uh, 2015 they were. Uh, 2016 they probably were not number one. That was That is correct. Year. So uh, you've named 2012, 2014, 2016. Yeah. Um. How many more do you need? Two. 
Uh, and let me, let me, you know what? Let me tell you, because I think this is the interesting thing. The other, the other two years, 2010, 2015, when they won the championship. Isn't that interesting? They... Because Kentucky was just the no doubt. Like, they went to the NCAA tournament undefeated in 2015. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that might have been close to the same thing in 2010 with Kentucky, because Kentucky was pretty stacked in 2010 as well. Kentucky, and that's the team that really took the attention away from Duke. I mean, Kentucky was undefeated at least until late January, if not longer, in 2010. That was the first, that was Calipari's first team in Kentucky where he had come with all the guys from Memphis. So, uh, John Wall had changed his commitment, and, uh, you know, Boogie Cousins had changed his commitment, and, uh, Daniel Orton, who, you know, I don't, I don't know if anyone remembers. But he was a big-time recruit back then. You know, he changed his recruit commitment. He still had Patrick, you know, Patterson. Um, so that was the team that really, uh, that really, you know, everybody was focused on in 2010. And then, you know, they lost in the, they lost to West Virginia because they couldn't hit a three-pointer. You know, they went like one for 25 from three or something in the, in the Elite Eight against West Virginia that year. And, uh, and that was the end of that. That's just how they, they were Duke 2019 the, before Duke 2019. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, and, and they had guys who could shoot. I think they just didn't hit anything that particular day. I mean, John Wall's never been a great shooter, but he was better in college than he is in the NBA. Uh, Eric, Eric Bledsoe is convinced he's a good shooter. Yeah. So, you know, they had guys who could, and, you know, they should. That was a good West Virginia team, you know, and, of course, Duke beat the pants off of them in the, in the Final Four that year. So, um, yeah, so that's actually a good point, yes, in terms of the AP. So, so uh, yeah, those two Kentucky teams uh, really, you know, took the attention that year, and they were both they were both very good teams, um, you know, uh, obviously. Um, you know, and it would have been interesting to see what happens if Duke plays Kentucky in the championship instead of Wisconsin. Okay, something I find underrated, which goes against what you said a little bit, though I do understand what you meant by it. Uh, I mean, they really have only lost two rotation players for the season, 2012 Ryan Kelly, 2016 Emil Jefferson, and then another for most, uh, 2011 Kyrie. And those three just completely wrecked Duke's season for better or worse each time. Mm-hmm. So no matter how many times you kind of we see or hear about Duke players walking around during the season wearing, I guess, uh, the, the fashionable recovery boots or whatever they're called, I mean, the bottom line is they do typically come back, which not every team is lucky enough to say. I mean, there's a lot of teams that uh, players go out and they're just, I mean, there's nothing they can do. I think uh, Michigan State, I feel bad. I always forget the guy's name. He he was out last year and now, now he's out again this year. And it's just they, they were counting on him. And it happens every year with teams. And so you can see those three seasons, it really messed with the chemistry, the rotation, everything. Yeah. So... I don't know. I, I would say Duke is kind of lucky, or not lucky, but fortunate in that sense, can, especially when you look at those specific years and think about what could have been. Yeah, I mean, I, they come back, but it, it it just disrupts the team so much. And uh, it, and then are you, are you ever quite 100%? You know, Ryan Kelly came back, had a great game, and then the rest of his year wasn't quite, you know, in 2013, had a great game against Miami. Um, but then the rest of the year didn't quite, you know, measure up to where he was before. It just, it's, it's a tough thing. You only have 40 games, you know, at most during the season. So when you start missing chunks of it, you know, and Kelly missed like 13 games that year, um, it just really starts to, uh, change, uh, change things. And it just seems like, you know, there's always something with the Duke player. Um, you know, the Zion injury last year, you know, yeah, he came back and he was just as good, but you know, I just, you just, you, you have to relearn some things and, uh, I don't know. It just it seems like it's disproportionately uh seems like it's disproportionately affected Duke. Now Michigan State 
also seems to be uh, a victim of this all the time. You know, Langford is the is the kid that's you know you're thinking of now. Yeah, but it yeah. seems like they're always um, it's always someone. You know, the player that recruited so hard against North Carolina to land, and then he never seemed like he could get on the court. They they seem like they are a bit snake bit there too. But um, yeah, there's those little things nagging, and then you you never quite know. You know, you're back on the court, but are you 100? percent And uh, I don't know. There's just it's just it's hard to make up that time. So you're correct. All right, uh, so assistant coaches during the period yep. with uh, the first season, you got Collins, Wojo, and Nate James. Then Chris Carwell was a grad assistant. Chris Carwell, I believe he moved over to the women's team, and then um, I think actually he went with uh, with um, Steve Wojo over to Marquette for a season at a later time. But, uh, yeah, so he was kind of off the staff uh, after that season than uh, when Capel joined because 2011 – through 2013, you got Capel, Collins, Wojo, and Nate James. Then you had uh, Collins leaves. You have Capel, Wojo, and James. Shire comes in 2015. So then 2016, Capel, James, and Shire. 2017, Nolan Smith joins. You got Capel, James, Shire, and Smith. 18, same thing. Then 2019, Carewell, he joins James, Shire, and uh, Smith. Although I'm not actually sure if Nolan Smith is technically on the staff, because, I mean, technically he is director of basketball operations. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he's actually included as a coach, but either way, I mean, I feel like his impact is the same. And um, so I'm including him, but I'm not technically sure he's officially part of the coaching staff. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I think he does help out. And, uh, you know, you do hear players referring to him as Coach Smith from time to time. So um, I think it's certainly not your typical director of basketball ops um, kind of position um, that, that some of these guys slide into. But, but yeah, uh, you know, it's certainly – and, you know, Nolan Smith, I think – the, the presence he brings, the people's champ, you know, as 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 he was, um, you know, really influential player. And I think, you know, with all these accolades that we talk about, I think, you know, you could boil this decade down to three players that did as much to change the culture as anybody else. And that's Nolan Smith, the Quinn Cook, uh, and then the Jabari Parker recruitment, three guys that we're probably not even going to talk that much about, you know, uh, when you get to superlatives. All right. So uh, you, got, you got the walk-ons, which is my favorite. So there's actually not nearly as uh, as many as I thought. I mean, you start out, you got Casey Peters, Todd Zafirowski, Steve Johnson, Jordan Davidson, and David Meyer in the first uh, from 2010 through 2012. But then from 2013 on, I mean, you got uh, Zafirowski, you got my guy uh, Nick Paliuka, Pags, yep. you got Sean Kelly for one year in 2015. Then pretty much, I mean... It's just Brennan Besser. Justin Robinson was a preferred walk-on. Now he's not anymore. Um, and uh, my boy Buck, Mike Buckmeyer. So, uh, yeah. The, so the only thing that surprised me, to be honest, was uh, David Meyer. Because it reminds me of uh, a quote. I don't know who this man is. I mean, he could be walking down the street. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know a thing. It reminds me of a quote from uh, social media from that lovely lady right there. So, yeah, I had no idea David Meyer was uh, a walk-on in 2011, but I learned something new. Yeah, you know, for all I know, he's the hot dog king of Chicago. I did not uh, did not know him either. And, uh, you know, had uh, you know, when you look up his bio on uh, on, uh, on the GoDuke site, he didn't exactly have the most stellar uh, high school career. So I'm sure there's a good story there. And, uh, you know, maybe we should – Search the fine paper of the uh, Chronicle at Duke University for 
for more information. But yeah, um, I think he's number fifty-one. I'm, I'm, I think uh, Buckmeyer wears fifty-one in his honor, or maybe. All right, so uh, all Americans nine total, six first team, three second teams. Um, they've had a first or second eight out of the ten seasons. The only seasons they didn't, 2012 and 16. So you got uh, Shire, second team in 2010. Nolan Smith, first team in 11. Mm-hmm. Mason Plumley, second team in 2013. Mm-hmm. Jabari, first team 2014. Uh, Okafor, 2015, first team. Luke Kennard, second team 2017. And then all first teams, uh, Bagley, Zion, and RJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, all ACC Dukies. Um, 2010 first, Shire and Sengler, 2010 second, Smith, 2011 first team, Smith and Sengler, 2012 first team, Rivers, 2012 third team, Seth Curry and Mason Plumley, 2013 first team, uh, Mason Plumley, 2013 second team, Seth Curry, 2013 third team, Quinn Cook, 2014 first team, Jabari, second team, Rodney Hood, 2015 first team, Okafor, second team, Quinn Cook, Third team, Tyus Jones. And for some reason, I, I stopped writing after that. And they've, I mean, they've had plenty more. Um, <laughs> all right, here's a post-recording edit to finish out the all-ACC Dukies. Let's see, we got in 2016, we got first team Grayson Allen, second team Brandon Ingram, 2017, first team Luke Kennard, third team J- Jason Tatum. At 2018, we got first team Marvin Bagley, second team Wendell Carter, and third team Grayson Allen. And then 2019 to just the two guys on the first team, Zion and RJ. I don't know why I stopped writing. Okay. So, uh, all right. So, so all freshman Dukies, 2010, none, 11, none, 12 Rivers, 13 Solomon, 14 Jabari, 15 Ja Tyus Justice, 16 Ingram, 17 Tatum, uh, and uh, 18 Bagley and Carter, 19 Zion, RJ, and Trey. Uh, rookie of the year, ACC, Rivers, Jabari, Ja, Ingram, Bagley, and Zion. You talked about uh, guys who scored 20. It was rare for a freshman to score 30. Uh, guys who averaged 20 during the period, Nolan Smith, 2011. Obviously, he was a senior. Grayson, uh, 2016 as a sophomore, 21.6. Bagley, 21. And then still kind of interesting to me that Zion and RJ both averaged the exact same, 22.6 last year. Then there was also... Uh, Jabari, who averaged 19.1, and Kennard, who averaged 19.5. So there's the guys that were big scores during the period, the one and duns. You got Kyrie, Austin, Jabari, Ja, Tyus, and Justice in 2015. You got Ingram. And then they all just start flooding in with Tatum, Giles, Jackson, 17, Bagley, Bagley, Carter, Trent, and DeVal in 2018, and 19, Barrett, Zion, and Cam. There's only one two and done, Luke Kennard, and one three and done. Marquise Bolden. I'm not technically sure what, if anything, to call Rodney Hood. Um, I mean, he stayed at Duke one year, but I mean, he obviously stayed. He was there the uh, the year where he had to sit out, and then he played a year before that in Mississippi State. So I'm not really sure. But yeah. anyway, all right. So uh, last thing going into the recruits. Uh, I mean, I know some might not want to hear this, but it does have a big effect on recruiting, and it was a big part of the change. So. So from 2015 to 2009, 11 of Duke's 17 ranked recruits were white with Mason Plumley and Ryan Kelly, the last top 20 white guys Duke got until a decade later with Matthew Hurt. Whatever ranked white player was signed in every single class for the next nine years was the lowest ranked recruit Duke got. Overall, during the next nine years, it was 30 black recruits, six white recruits, and interestingly enough, 
all six of those white recruits stayed more than a year. So before, I mean, before that, it was it was just a different type of recruit. And I think uh, some of what uh, you mentioned, some of what uh, I mentioned in terms of Duke missed out on certain guys, there was a certain, it wasn't just the color of skin. I'm not saying that. It was just a certain type of uh, guy uh, who, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so 2010 to 2012. So Kyrie and Austin shows that willingness and ability to get a one and done. Plus, Rodney Hood was basically a transfer one and done in 2012. Uh, transfers out, Benajay and Murphy. Uh, 2013, Jabari, as we both said, he opened up everything. And then 2014, the current, with the multiple one and dones, players recruit their friends. Guys immediately get recruited over if they stay. And uh, there weren't many guys who... I mean, more than bit role players who stayed over a year starting with that 2014 recruiting class were Grayson, Kennard, uh, Marquise Bolden, and Trey. That's it. So McDonald's All-Americans, 27 total in the decade, 18 from 2014 to 2018. Actually, I think that was 17. Um, so, And that also, not the likely might or mostly would have been. You got six others with Andre Dawkins, Alex Murphy, uh, Derek Thornton, Marvin Bagley, and Joey Baker, and Harry Giles. Uh, the first five, they reclassified, and Harry Giles was injured. So they could have gotten more. So it's kind of crazy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the RSCI rankings, number eight, number nine, number two, number ten, number four, number one, number one, number two, number two, and number one. Mm. So, I mean, these classes were just monsters. Transfers in, Seth Curry sat out the 2010 year. Rodney Hood sat out the 2013 year. Then Sean Obi, who I'll also include transfers out, uh, he sat out the 2015 year. Yeah. So transfers out, uh, I mentioned Oleg Chiz before. Um, he uh, went to Nevada. He actually played really well there. Uh, you got Alex Murphy, who uh, went to Florida, mm -hmm. then Northeastern, kind of struggled. Semi Ojale had a great uh, year at uh, Southern, Meth Southern Methodist. Um, so, uh, you got Derek Thornton, who went to USC, struggled with injuries, now is at BC, so he seems to be playing really well now. Chase Jeter went to Zona, and he seems to be uh, having a pretty good time there. Jordan Tucker, when, uh, he transferred early on in his freshman year, went to Butler. Uh, and then Sean Obi again. So, uh, and also Michael Benajay. Obviously, Michael Benajay, he went to Cuse after his freshman year. He actually developed into a terrific point guard. Yep. And obviously, uh, Rashid Suleiman dismissed in 2015. Recruiting from the West Coast, there was Derek Thornton, Chase Jeter, Frank Jackson, and Marvin Bagley. You got uh, foreign overseas, Sean Obi from Nigeria, although he played high school in Connecticut. You got Jack White. Came from. And then, obviously, the uh, the other uh, famous Aussie that Duke got, Kyrie Irving, who's definitely an Aussie, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, then last, uh, lastly, the family connections, all 17 Plumleys. You got uh, Tyus and Trey. You got Ryan and Sean Kelly. Uh, I guess you can include uh, Joe Pagliuca along with Nick Pagliuca. Mm -hmm. Then I think early on, the, I think he was a walk-on early on when I mentioned the 2010s, uh, Jordan Davidson, who also Patrick Davidson. Mm -hmm. Lefty, paws. you got uh, Rodney Hood, Justice Winslow. Luke Kennard is right-handed but shoots left. Uh, Marvin Bagley, R.J. Barrett. Zion Williamson, Vernon Carey, and I'm pretty sure the great Todd Zafirowski. Mm. All right, so th those are kind of some quick facts. So uh, real, real quick, here's a, here's a fun game. Uh, you got to pick the winner. Kyle Singler versus Kyle Guy, Luke May versus Luke Kennard, Cam Johnson versus Cam Reddish, and Tyus Jones versus Tyus Battle. <laughs> 
I pick uh, the Duke guy every time. Uh, Actually, now Cam Johnson, I might have to What go up with. was it a Duke guy? Right? It was Cam Johnson. Oh, it was Cam. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Cam Johnson, clearly much better player than uh, Cam Reddish <laughs> at the college level. I mean, Cam Johnson was a phenomenal player. It's, you know, that transfer in from Pitt, I mean, that just changed North Carolina. He was such a such a great player, um, you know, and a key part of, uh, of that championship team. So, um, yeah, so uh, Kyle Singler, definitely, you know, one of the toughest guys who ever played in the ACC. Uh, he owns the ACC record for most times diving into press row. Um, you know, uh, uh, Luke May versus Luke Kennard, you know, that's a tough one. Luke May had a heck of a career for a guy that everyone made fun of when he was, uh, you know, recruited. It was a barely a top 100 recruit of that, um, you know, certainly turned into a usable, uh, I mean, more than usable, uh, you know, uh, ACC uh, player. Uh, hit a huge shot against Kentucky that he will forever be remembered for. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely Cam Johnson. And then uh, I, I missed last. Oh, Tyus uh, Jones versus Tyus Battle. Yeah. So, you know, Tyus, uh, it's hard to go against the, the big three, um, you know, uh, against Wisconsin, the big three against Virginia, and everything he brought to the table. When you think about backcourts, I mean, Duke had two of the best in the decade with Tyus Jones and Quinn Cook and John Shire and Nolan Smith. I kind of – this is the only national thing I'll do just to kind of see where Duke might include in this. Would you say they belong in uh, – how, how, who would you say, like, if you're going to make, like, a top three? Some of the guys who uh, – some of the backcourts I have. All right, there's Fred Van Vliet and Ron Baker. Yeah. There's Jalen Brunson, Ryan R.C. Diacono, mm-hmm. Marcus Page, Joel Berry, Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy, John Wall, Eric Bledsoe. Kemba Walker, Shabazz Napier, Frank Mason, uh, Devonta Graham, Joel Barry. Where well, I said Joel Barry, Marcus Page, um, and uh, lastly the uh, the all crazy team. And I don't mean crazy in a bad way; just entertaining. Russ Smith and Peyton Siva. Yeah. So if if you can think of another one, I may have forgotten. Or do you think Shire and uh, Smith and Tyus Jones Cook? Do you think they could make uh, the top three or higher in that list? Uh, boy, that's a research project to go into. But yeah, I mean, this is a tremendously talented. You know, my first thought was, was gravitating to, you know, Jalen Brunson and, and the, the, you know, the Villanova backcourt. And then, you know, uh, that, that was my first thought. Um, you know, Russ and Peyton, um, interesting pair, um, did different things. Um, you know, it's hard with Nolan and, uh, uh, Kyrie, because you never quite got a sense of exactly how they would play together. You know, they played, what, nine games together, total seven before? Well, well yeah, I said Nolan and Shire. Oh, I thought you said Nolan Kyrie. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it was a very, it was, it was a good pairing. Um, you know, the one thing that helped that team, too, is just they changed the way that they played defense over. Think about on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if Shire stands up there. I mean, he was a good defender. I don't want to put him down, but we're talking about best backcourts of, of all time, you know, and, and Kimba and Shabazz. Um, you know, I mean, Kimba by himself won an NCAA title, which is, which is just incredible in retrospect. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're in the right ballpark. I think they're in that ballpark. Um, you know, they were, they were very good, uh, very good duos back there. And, you know, Smith and, and Shire were just so steady, and that's what that team needed. You know, it had three guys who could get you a bucket. They had the bare minimum, you know, to be able to win a title, and, and they were just so good with the ball. And, um, you know, they were exactly what worked for that team, um, and a really slow-paced team for a Duke, you know, team. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, I think they fit. And, you know, and uh, who was your other Duke uh, pair that you wanted to throw out there? Was it Tyus and Cook? Yeah, Tyus and Quinn. Yeah, and Tyus and Quinn, man, that was just – I mean, it was a backcourt that was like a love story or something, right? Like everything came together. Everything seemed like it was, you know, over for Quinn Cook for some reason. You know, after that Mercer loss, and he hadn't really established himself as a point guard. Maybe some of that was Mike Krzyzewski and, you know. Um, but, you know, you thought he was going to be supplanted, but he just took on that leadership role, and he slid over to the two-guard and – you know, played that combo role and uh, never complained about it and kept everybody on. So, you know, in terms of intangibles and that sort of thing, I think Quinn Cook, again, you know, one of the most important players of the decade. So, you know, I think they're they're in that, that area. Um, you know, both really good fits for what that team needed. You know, the, the leadership that uh, Quinn Cook bought and, the you know, the ability to hit a three and taking care of the basketball. I think Quinn Cook is the all-time Duke leader in assist-to-turnover uh, ratio for his career. Which is kind of hard to believe, you know, when he started his career and he made many questionable decisions that, that landed him on the bench. So, um, yeah, so a little hard to say from from an overview, but I, I think they both they both have, have pretty good cases. But, you know, UConn and the, the Villanova backcourt certainly, you know, stand out to me from, from this decade. Yeah, I mean, the ability to hit from deep. I mean, even Mercer. I think uh, Quinn was really I – mean, he was 7 of 10 from deep in that game. He had a huge game versus Mercer along with uh, – I mean, him and Emil, Emil in, uh, versus South Carolina, guys that just had, like, huge games and games nobody wants to remember. Yeah. All right, so uh, and overall, the stat that uh, maybe 15 years from now can repeat itself. But I'll say, Duke will win a championship when something happens. All right, when a Plumlee only attempts one three-pointer in their entire career and they make that three-pointer, Duke wins the championship. Mm. It's guaranteed. See, Mason Plumlee, he was too selfish. He took, like, five in his career or something, like maybe eight. But I would say Miles Plumlee took one three-pointer his entire career, made it in the 2010 season. And uh, your old buddy Marshall took mm-hmm. one three-pointer his entire career, made it. And guess what year that was? Uh, it was 2015. I remember specifically there's this great clip. You're talking about David Bradley. You know, it's on Duke Blue, Blue Planet. They made a, you know, like, uh, I believe I can fly montage or something out of it, right? <laughs> I and do the, remember that. The yeah. funny thing about it, you know, he hits the shot. Because it's like the end of the shot clock, and he just had to chuck it. And God knows why he was even at the top of the key. I guess he was setting a screen, and, and the, the ball handler rejected it or whatever. But he gets the ball, he shoots it. And then you can see the bench just go. This was like a blowout game. As I recall, I could be wrong, but I think it was like a November game and they were winning by 30 or whatever. And that was a blowout game. But like you see on the bench, Rashid Suleiman jumping up and down very specifically. And then as the camera pans, like it pans and Suleiman leaves the frame and then it's just focused on the rest of the team. It just it's kind of an eerie like foreshadowing of what was to come uh, that year. But uh but yeah, it's uh, Duke's all-time uh, leading sharpshooter, um, Marshall. Well, no, he's tied with another player that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. His brother. Oh, yeah. Because that is the stat. If they would only shoot one in their career and they make it, Duke wins the championship that year. So maybe 15 years from now, maybe sooner, maybe later. Well, wait, it would definitely be later because the player can't come at 15 years old to Duke. But... Yeah, maybe sometime in the distant future we'll have another Plumlee who will take one three-pointer in his career. He'll make it, and Duke will win the championship. All right, 
year by year. So I'm not going to go deep into each year. So I'll just go through a couple things for each year. You add whatever you would like to each. Sure. 2010, 35 and 5, 13 and 3 in the ACC. Obviously won the championship. Alarmingly unathletic, mm-hmm. according to Gottlieb, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pre-New Year's loss, it was Wisconsin. The big games, I would say the difference makers, Georgetown and Maryland. Georgetown, they lost. It was, uh, it was a heavy snow that day. Obama actually came to watch uh, that game in Duke. It wasn't even as close as the final score. I think Duke scored like the last 10 points or something. They just got trounced. And then Maryland, that was the game. Brian Zubek, after three and a half seasons of injuries, finally got healthy, slowed the tempo down. So that was just a really, that was, that was a, uh, a game changer right there. It's tough to know how Duke really was going into the NCAA tournament, considering the ACC was pretty bad that year. Uh, Shire, Singler, Nolan, they took care of the scoring load. Um, you got uh, Shire, he was really slumping, headed into the tournament. He was even 1-for-11, second round versus Cal. He he got on track the next game against Purdue, and uh, Singler went 0-of-10 that game, so that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Final four, Bob Huggins and Deshaun Butler, there was a... Really, I mean, Duke trounced West Virginia that game, as you mentioned. But Deshaun Butler, I think he tore his ACL. And for those who uh, think Bob Huggins has no emotion, he, he there was a scene with him and Deshaun Butler, which is pretty memorable. Then, um, obviously, the Butler game. And let me ask you, Zubek's miss on purpose, then Gordon Hayward barely missing a possible Disney ending. Uh, if you're the coach, should a player miss that? On purpose? No, I hated that scene <laughs> at the time. I think they just got lucky. Um, I mean, you make that shot, you're up three. Like, the worst they can do is, you know, realistically, the worst they can do is foul you. You can dream up a worst-case scenario where they hit a three while you foul them or whatever. But, you know, realistically, the worst they can do is tie you. Like, why would you possibly, you know, why would you run that risk? Um, you know, if, if, if they hit a three, great. You know, you let them set up or, or whatever. I mean, they wound up getting a... You know, even with the miss, they wound up getting, you know, I mean, it's a heave, right? It's a half-court heave. But uh, that Matt Howard screen of dubious legality on Kyle Singler, where he just decked Kyle Singler that sprung Hayward for that three, um, you know, I got him a pretty good look for a last-minute shot. You know, those guys, you know, you're obviously not going to hit a high percentage, but when you get a clean look at the basket, even in half-court, you know, you got you got a shot. So, but yeah, I would have never uh, I would have never missed that. I hated that decision. But, you know, Mike Shevsky knows his team. I guess he felt like, they, you know, if it goes to overtime, he doesn't have it. But I don't know why you'd ever willingly put yourself in a position to lose, potentially lose. Yeah, and last thing, with all respect to Butler, I do think Butler would deserve to be there. I actually, for a long time, I considered the, uh, the Baylor game in the Elite Eight the kind of de facto national championship. Baylor was amazing that year. Baylor was really good. And uh, Andre Dawkins came and hit two huge threes in that game. So I, th- I thought that was, I mean, the Baylor game, the intensity, along with some interesting things happening at the end. I, I mean, that was just, I love those games, which are just insanely intense. And Baylor was, Baylor more than lived up to that. That was, uh, yeah, I, just to add on to that game, you know, a couple things. Like, one, yeah, that game was huge. You know, people, so one thing about the game, it was in Houston, which obviously is yes. not next door to Waco, but it's a lot closer. You know, Duke was the one seed in the South. It's a lot closer than Durham is, so they had a home court advantage. Um, second thing, that was a really good Baylor team. People, you know, Lace Darius Dunn, who at the time was the Big 12's all-time leading scorer, was on that team. Tweedy Carter was on that team. That was a really good um, Baylor team that they went up against. There was no way that they were guaranteed uh, winning that game. As you said, you know, Dawkins came off the bench as a freshman, hit those couple of three-pointers, um, you know, and and, uh, and and Duke held on to to win that game. But, yeah, that was one of the best games, you know, Duke played of the decade. And then after that, they just, 
you know, they rolled West Virginia in the next round. Even, you know, Deshaun Butler, um, you know, when he, I believe it was a torn ACL, but when he did that, that, you know, that game was already out of hand by that point. Oh, yeah. It was with like 10 minutes to go in the game or eight minutes or something. Um, and Duke was just rolling him. And it was just an unbelievable, because that was a great team. That was, uh, I believe it was the Big East champion that year. Um, you know, they had knocked off Kentucky, the unbeatable Kentucky team, you know, in the previous round. And, uh, and that was a team, you know, that just by the end of that year, that team had such an identity. You know, they had three guys who could get you a bucket, the bare minimum, and those three took care of the scoring. And then you had Lance Thomas, who was, you know, just uh, the defense, most defensively versatile player Duke may have ever had. Um, you know, and then you have Brian Zubek, who just understood his role, you know, catch an offensive rebound, chuck it out. And, 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 and he was great at it. Um, and he gave you just enough scoring in the post that you did have to respect him. I remember, you know, very specifically one of the games you didn't mention, there was 82-50. That was the year that, you know, on Chuck oh, yeah, senior sure. night that Duke beat uh, Carolina by 32 points. And, you know, that was probably a charitable in that it was only 32. Um, and, uh, you know, Zubek had it. I was sitting next to Bucky Waters for that back when I still used to to cover this sport and he had this nice post move. And I remember the two of us just looked at each other like, you know, where, where did that come from? You know, like it was just, you know, so he just really blossomed. And, you know, when you talk about great turning point moments for Duke, um, that Georgetown game was one of them where you said Obama was there late January snow. It wasn't just Obama. It was Obama and Biden. You know, you very rarely see the president and the vice president in the same place, but they were there. And not only that, Adrian Fenty was there too, who probably doesn't, you know, register uh, much naturally, except uh, I think, uh, well, never mind. Uh, but Adrian Fenty was the mayor of D.C. at the time, and he was seen as a rising star in the party. Um, so everyone was there. And, yeah, Georgetown just ran him off the court. But after that, they moved Zubek into the lineup um, to start uh, by that Maryland game on February 13th, which I think was Mike Krzyzewski's 1,000th game coached, something like that. Um he, uh, you know, he had a tremendous game against Maryland when they won that one by 21, who, of course, they went on to tie the ACC uh, regular season with. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, it was just uh, it was it was all pretty good. But again, the ACC tournament there wasn't automatic. They didn't play great in the ACC tournament. That was the challenge of being a team that was so tethered to three guys being able to score um, when things weren't going well. You know, they didn't blow teams out there, but, um, you know, it's a team that just everything came together and it completely changed the perception of Duke that they were able to put that together. You know, it was a tournament with a lot of upsets um, and uh, Duke was able to get out of it unscathed. Um, they played the highest seed that they could play uh, all the way up to, I believe uh, the Butler game. You know, they played Purdue who didn't have Robbie Hummel, but still had a very good team. They played Baylor, essentially a road game and then the big East champ, West Virginia. And then, uh, and then Butler, which, um, you know, may not be the most artistically beautiful game, but really an intense National championship game, one you can sit down and watch again without the without the anxiety of, of not knowing what's going to happen. You know, that whole game was played in like a four or six point, you know, bracket. So and- I would actually say the casual fan like that game, it bring, I, I think just because of the whole David Goliath thing that has a lot to do with it. But yeah. I think I mean, you talk about it not being a beautiful game to watch. I actually think it was played pretty well. Maybe I'm just misremembering. I actually haven't seen it in a while, but I don't think it kind of – the score wasn't real high, but I think it was a pretty well-played game. I will also add that I think one of the most impressive things about that team was you said they relied so much on three guys. And, I mean, when Shire went into that horrifying slump, I mean, you only had two guys who were really able to get that consistent bucket, and they still advanced. I will also say, finally, that Lance Thomas, that's about as well as you can be a leader from – 
from a guy who really his usage is slim to none. He was just like the respect he had by everyone on that team. It, he he really I mean and also hey he, they just came out with uh, the all decade team for the Knicks. That's Lance right. Thomas was all was an honorable mention, which great for him. It also just shows how it's been quite a decade for the Knicks. Yeah, one other interesting footnote about that uh, about that score. That's a game Duke won that game. They had zero points from the bench in that game, and the national championship game. Um, you know, they had five. The five starters were the only players who uh, who scored in that game. Uh, the bench only took three shots, and they missed them all. So, um, so you know, it was a team that had very little depth, but um, you know, they found an identity and uh, and 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 were able to to put together a championship run. You know, that was Duke's. Um, first sort of, I don't want to say flukish national championship run, but it was one where they weren't really expect, even though they were one seed, like that was Kentucky's year, you know, and, and everybody, oh, they're going to lose to, they're going to lose to Cal because Cal had, you know, some seven foot, you know, center who was a Chinese American guy or Chinese transfer. I don't even remember it now, but they had this big center and they're going to lose to him, you know, and Duke also had the advantage that year of. One, they didn't have to play in the same pod with Carolina because Carolina went to the uh, NIT. Uh, and then secondly, it was in Jacksonville. You know, I think actually being away from North Carolina tends to be a benefit uh, for Duke in earlier on games. But, uh, you know, everyone just kept predicting him to lose. You know, even though Purdue didn't have Robbie Hummel, they were going to lose to Purdue. They were going to lose to Houston. And then, you know, they, they uh, took care of it. And it just, again, it changed the perception from where you go to Duke at its low point after the tournament the previous year. Um, to be in that team that Kyle Singler the next year is going to talk about having, you know, a glow about it. Yeah, Juwan Johnson actually played pretty well that game for Purdue. Anyway, all right, yeah. so 2011. So you got uh, before the season starts, you got, uh, I don't know if famous is the right word, but you got the interview with, like, you got all the Carolina recruits kind of huddled around Kyrie and Kyrie all on his own. Um, it, I mean, what was it, Barnes? It was... Was that Danny Green? It was just a whole bunch of guys and kind of like Green. all mocking Kyrie for free. It was, it was it was big at the time. I mean, social media wasn't quite obviously what it is now, but it was just funny because Kyrie was just like alone by himself and Carolina was thought to just be like stacked. So heading into that season, um, Duke, they, they, they did have a lot of believers because they just won the championship. And hey, now you got Kyrie, you got Nolan Smith and Singler coming back. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned it. Kyrie puts on an absolute show against Michigan State. I mean, that was just – it wasn't just the stats. It was how he did it. Just unbelievable. Uh, Mason, he really – Mason Plumley showed a lot of potential versus Marquette that got everyone excited. Togate begins versus Butler. Kyrie Togate. There was the 14-point halftime comeback against UNC, which is big. And in the uh, – here going the big games I have it listed. All right, so March 9th against uh, UNC trailed by 15 with under a minute left in the first half and outscored UNC 50 to 30. Um, in the AC tournament final, I mean I was positive Duke would go back to back after that game. I was so confident. And then they played Arizona. Derek Williams with the huge first half. Then uh, then basically his teammates all just went off in the second half and it just got into. Arizona would just they would just run off Duke off the floor and transition. It was a pretty brutal second half. I thought it really started when Seth Curry got injured. I think that was like midway, maybe at the end of the first. I can't remember exactly when it happened, but I thought Seth Curry when he got injured, the floodgates just started opening. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was that was a tough loss to Arizona because I think everyone saw the potential with that team. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, it was a team that had really found itself again uh, after uh, the loss of Kyrie, you know, in early December and Matt Howard once again, you know, <laughs> who shows up. And, you know, Matt Howard, by the way, going into the championship, he was seen as like the star of that team. And then, you know, of course, Gordon Hayward wound up being, you know, the best player and um, uh, off that team. But, you know, Matt Howard came back the next year and, um, you know, he is the guy who, uh, you know, not intentionally, of course, but uh, winds up uh, winds up injuring Kyrie. But the team had really found its identity after that. Nolan Smith was just brilliant. You know, that Carolina game, the reason they came back in the second half was because Nolan Smith went the hell off. I mean, he was just, you know, absolutely perfect um, in that game. Uh, one of the best games any Duke players ever played against uh, Carolina uh, in that game. But. Um, you know, and then when Kyrie came back, you started seeing the cracks in that Michigan game. You know, Duke barely beat Michigan uh, that game. Uh, their defense wasn't uh, very good. Um, and that's really sort of the, the downside of what's going to come out of this is the end of the year for that team uh, when Kyrie comes back um, is sort of the start of a, an era of Duke that's no longer defined by – um, you know, slap the floor kind of defense. You know, Duke really struggles in the early part of this decade to adapt to a game that's driven by the pick and roll um, and, uh, and and limiting dribble penetration. And that's one of the things that we saw, you know, in the in the Michigan game. Um, and uh, Duke barely held on there. And then, of course, Arizona. You know, Arizona is just one of those things that happens in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, when Derek Williams hit that ridiculous three right before halftime, you know, just chucked it up and it was – you know, God, what, 10, 15 feet beyond the line goes in. You just sort of knew it was going to be um, Arizona's night. And then the second half, Momo Jones is the guy who just absolutely, you know, Derek Williams was great, but Momo Jones, you know, out of nowhere is a guy who was, you know, his offensive rating for the season was like 100 and just couldn't miss everything he threw. It was a, was a, it was an assist on a, on a, you know, it was a line. It just, it was unbelievable. Um, so it is, uh, you know, I think if you sort by Duke's worst, defensive performances you know on Ken Palm I think it's either still the worst or maybe the Vermont game that they actually won is the worst but it's still one of the worst all time just absolutely uh clock Duke but you know it ended a season that uh Duke was once again uh good enough to win a national title but an injury just really um tossed that team tossed that team uh uh you know a, a curve they couldn't handle yeah, I mean, Nolan, he had the killer crossover against Michigan, which is the highlight, but you did see the cracks in the armor right there, and Kyrie, he hit a bunch of free throws versus Michigan, but then, I mean, Nolan Smith, he just didn't look right against uh, Arizona, shot 3 of 14, tough loss. All right, 2012, this was uh, an odd year, because, I mean, you, you, they almost lost it, which which one was it? Was it Belmont? Yeah, not Vermont, it was Belmont that year that they almost lost. I think yeah. there was even an exhibition game they it's kind of a big scare. Um, they lost to Temple, but they finished undefeated on the road in the ACC, which they are literally the only team, the only Duke team to do that in the in the decade. Mm -hmm. um, Quinn Cook, I think, was a big deal. He was slow to recovery from a high school injury he suffered at uh, Oak Hill. Either he doesn't travel with the team or at least doesn't play with the team in a preseason overseas trip, and it's just – it made it tough. He was supposed to be their point guard. So without developing trust in Cook, Duke lacks a point guard – there was the, the in terms of the big moments the Tyler Thornton scissor kick dagger versus Kansas in Maui that was that was unexpected and huge to win the Maui Invitational there yep. or to kind of hit the dagger they were crushed at Ohio State in the Big Ten ACC Big Ten where Paulus was coaching at the time mm -hmm. uh, and then I think the comeback most forget about because uh, 
I mean, it almost seems like nothing compared to Louisville, but or Louisville. But in terms of just an insane comeback, they were down 20 to NC State with 11.41 left. And they came back. I think the difference was it was at home. So people were more, I think, pissed than anything else at that point in time. It was actually like right after the UNC comeback. So it, it, it was crazy. And there was obviously the UNC, the, the river shot, undefeated AC on the road, like I said. But, uh, I mean, the big thing was just when Ryan Kelly sprained his foot um, headed into the ACC tournament, it just kind of every – it was done. I mean, Josh Harrison was forced in while he did his best. I mean, and everyone stopped being able to shoot. I mean, Seth Curry, I think that was the biggest thing. Like, everyone thinks Austin Rivers, blah, blah, blah. Seth Curry was a consistently big-time shooter during the year, and he just didn't hit anything. Um towards the end of the year. I mean, and then he gets in foul trouble early on versus Lehigh. So it's basically Rivers by himself. I think actually Duke hit like their first like 10 shots versus Lehigh and never hit another. So, uh, and then Andre Dawkins couldn't hit. Basically just no one, no one could hit shots. And that's what it came down to. So yeah, that, that was a tough year. Austin Rivers gets a lot of the blame, but Ryan Kelly, when he went out, it just, that was, that was, that was a pretty big crusher. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was sort of an under-talented team, and then once they lost a piece, um, it was kind of hard to to come back. But you know, uh, when you were going through that year, they lost, the the first game against Belmont that year, they win by one, but there was a three at the buzzer, so it wasn't quite as as nerve-wracking as it seemed. But you know, that wound up being a pretty good team. They finished twenty-five in Ken Palm. That was a, a legitimate uh, team. That was a very good non-conference uh, test early on. Um, the NC State game you're talking about. So I think, um, I think uh, that game was one of the games where the broadcast crew had given the crazies green shirts to wear because it was part of uh, um, ABC goes green or whatever network it was broadcast on. So everybody was wearing green, you know, to promote environmentalism. And that first half after Duke was getting its, uh, its butt handed to it, uh, they all took the shirts off and threw them away. Right. So you go back to being the blue as Duke. And that definitely happened. I'm pretty sure it was that game. My other nice story about uh, that game is uh, my uh, grandmother, who is still with us, God bless her, uh, huge Duke fan, uh, enormous Duke fan. After most games, I like to to call and uh, talk with her about, uh, you know, what happened. And, uh, you know, she's 93, but she's still following along very avidly. Um, but uh, after the game, so she was in the hospital for a, a little bit of a health scare uh, right after that game, you know, the next day or the day after and, uh, you know, she hadn't said much and, you know, she was recuperating. And uh, at some point, one of the uh, nurses or technicians came in and said something about uh, being an NC State fan. And for some reason, she heard that and she just looks up and said, so what do you think about that ball game? Or, you know, it's just like this this great moment where, you know, my 80 something year old grandmother is, is is throwing fire at the uh, at the at the technician over that game. So, yeah, that was a big one. And of course. Um, you know, 2012, um, it, the, the, the Carolina game, the, the Austin massacre, um, you know, it's just, it's one of the few times where something happens in a game that it actually makes you yell or just like jump up or something. And that was, that was one of those moments. Cause that was a game that Duke had absolutely no business winning. Uh, Tyler Zeller was absolutely the best player in that game. Um, he's only remembered for tipping in a shot. I think it was Ryan Kelly's shot that he tipped in. Um, that was going to be short of a, a three-pointer. It was going to be short, and he uh, tipped it into the basket inadvertently. Um, but, yeah, that game just, you know, ridiculous. And Tyler Thornton, again, hit a big three, uh, you know, in that run at the end. Seth Curry hit a three that was, you know, 10 feet behind the line. 
Um, and then it all set up for uh, for Austin Rivers, and you know we're all just watching, like, oh, what are you doing? You know, do something, and he just backs Zeller down and shoots the three over him. So, um, you know, that is a moment that uh, will always live on in in the Duke Carolina you know montages. It's right up there with Capel, you know, hitting the hitting the half court shot. So at least you got something out of it. Um, and then uh, yeah, everything kind of once Kelly hurt you know himself, and I think it was just in a practice he injured himself too. It wasn't even like a game. It was another one of these practice injuries that just popped up and uh, missed the rest of the season after that. And then, you know, Lehigh, I always say the thing about Lehigh, people bring up Lehigh and, you know, uh, to, to, to rip on Duke. But I think about Lehigh, that's like the classic March Madness upset. You have a 15 seed that's underseeded. That team was better than a 15 seed. And then the best player on the court, it's like, you know, uh, Steve Nash back in the day or, you know, some of these, you know, at Santa Clara, some of these these upsets, you look back and you say, well, of course it was an upset. They had C.J. McCollum. He was the best player on the court. He scored like 31 in that game, you know, just took over. He was uh, he was just a phenomenal player. He was a better player than Duke had. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, embarrassing NCAA tournament, yeah, it stinks to lose to a 15 seed. And by the way, that was the second time it had happened that day because Missouri had just gotten upset by Norfolk State earlier in the day. Um, it stinks, but, uh, that's just what happens. Sometimes you have these transcendent players on other teams and they just, they have a night and that's exactly what happened with, uh, CJ McCollum. And then, uh, you know, then when you go into the next year, that's when you talk about an NCAA tournament loss that should never happen. That, you know, was a, was, was a more embarrassing loss to me. That Mercer loss the next year is a much, much worse loss. Now, if we're looking at like trends that come out of this year, this is the first year where Duke really struggles on defense. They finished 79th in the nation in Kim Palm in defense that year, which is just, you know, again, Duke was always a team where the defense was always great. You know, it was always a top 10, you know, kind of defense. And this is where you started to really see the cracks in the armor. Uh, that's really going to be a problem for Duke throughout the decade. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, uh, the UNC game that it's just like, it was really interesting to me because you could kind of see it coming in slow motion. There was a lot of just things that you just don't happen. And Zeller was involved in a lot of them, <laughs> including missed free throws yeah. and all kinds of stuff. And it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to say prefer because that makes it sound like there's anything negative about River Shop. But like, I think the most amazing things are the ones that just come out of nowhere. Like, I still, I've never jumped out of my seat. Like, when Sean Dockery hit his game winner versus Virginia Tech. But so, but at the same time, it was, it was kind of amazing watching something and kind of you're feeling it coming closer and closer. You're like, this is going to happen. And then it did. And it's just like, it wasn't surprising. It was just amazing to know you just witnessed something incredible and uh yeah versus lehigh i mean seth curry was one of nine oh six from three before making like a worthless attempt at the end so it's just it, it was tough and that's the first time i will say that i really questioned k he didn't really adapt to much during that game or towards the end of the season when uh once kelly went out and i had always kind of blindly trusted him like most and i still think he deserves Obviously, most of that trust um, based on his resume, but at the same time, like I did think there was adjustments he just didn't make. So that's the first time I can remember personally questioning some of what Kay did within a game. That doesn't mean anything like, oh, I hate Kay or whatever, or like, who am I to do it? It's just there's basketball stuff you can see happening. All right, so 2013, you did say they lost to Mercer the next year. It's actually two years later because oh, 2013 yes. – um, the chemistry was much better. I think people – Seth Curry said like every – like we really like each other. I think people 
read too too much into that, and they everyone jumped on thinking that was a dig at Rivers, which I don't think it was, but who knows. Um, but I did think there was some uh, big-time chemistry there. Uh, let's see, uh, Quinn Cook, he kind of drives K crazy, but he does run the team really well. Uh, Rashid Suleiman, huge freshman production, 15-0. Kelly gets injured again, so kind of here we go again. They were 9-4 without him, pretty shaky. Then the uh, the Ryan Kelly game, he returns against Miami, 36 points, just absolutely huge. One game I didn't mention, uh, we mentioned on our last pod, Louisville Battle for Atlantis, mm-hmm. where Quinn has a huge game and is surprised by his mom, where she and his late father eloped. At uh, Let's see, another one, February 10th at BC. They trailed by five with just over two minutes left. Huge game for Mason Plumley. Mentioned uh, the Ryan Kelly game. There was also UNC, which uh, Tyler Thornton on February 13th, he made a bunch of big plays at the end of that game. So I call that the Tyler Thornton game. Duke, uh, they lost one and done in the AC tournament, where I call that the Dez Wells game, where Dez had a just a crazy game for Maryland. And then I think with uh, Louisville, what mo- what most remember about that game is Kevin Ware and the visceral reaction many got from watching. And Duke pretty much, Louisville pulled away after that. Louisville it was the best team, or they uh, won the national championship that year. So they... Uh, they got blown out, but it was kind of right after that play happened, the Kevin Ware game, which everything kind of went downhill. Yeah, so 2013 was interesting. That was a really good Duke team. So when we talk about, you know, what is the measure of success in college basketball, I always think, are you putting teams on the floor that could win a national championship? 2013 was good enough. I mean, Louisville was a better team by the end of the year, but they were good enough that if somebody knocked off Louisville, they could have been right there and won a national championship. So it's really one of sort of Duke's forgotten really good teams. Um, you know, you had Mason Plumley, who was phenomenally won Pete Newell, uh, the you know, big man of the year award that year, um, had a tremendous season. Um, you know, it just, it just was a good team up and down the lineup until they lost Ryan Kelly. That was a team too. It was really good defensively up until they lost Ryan Kelly. Ryan Kelly, not only did he have great spacing cause he was an excellent three point shooter, um, you know, was, the, was one of the, you know, really the best stretch fours Dukes has had. Um, he was a really good help side defender um you know he was really good at those uh, uh coming over for the you know blocking shots from the as, as a help defender he had that area at a 5.3 block percentage which is really good for a for a four and a guy you don't think of as you know particularly intimidating by comparison Jason Plumley. um so he was really good and really important in that defense and that they never quite got back but it was a really good defensive team everything you know really was coming together for that team they did they beat uh, uh louisville in the battle for atlantis the one um, asterisk there is I believe uh, Louisville didn't have their center Gorgie Ding in that game, but I don't think it was going to matter. You know, they, they were going to win that game. They, they were just really good. You know, again, it gets back to K having these teams ready to play early on. Um, you know, this is just when you talk about the what ifs of the season, you know, what happens that year if Ryan Kelly doesn't get hurt? Because what winds up happening is they go into the NCAA tournament as a two seed. And then not only do they get a two seed, this is a year that the NCAA is putting this focus on geographic distribution because, you know, having to take a flight to Louisville or wherever is so much different than having to take a flight to, you know, Dallas. So Duke, which, you know, may have been the second best team in the country that year, um, winds up as the two seed behind Louisville, the clear cut best team in the country. So, you know, I think Duke really for all, you know, people will talk about Duke getting preferential seating or whatever. I mean, that's a great example of a time where Duke really got screwed by the selection committee, you know, being the two seed to the overall number one seed. And I think, you know, on the S curve that year, 
Um, they were five or six or something like that. So it was purely a geographic um, determination. So, you know, when I look back on this team, I just think about, you know, what could have been. Now, I don't think by the end of the year they were going to beat Louisville, but that could have very easily been uh, a Final Four team. And again, it's a team that, you know, started breaking through. You got out of the Sweet 16 and, um, you know, knocked out that, you know, the, the, the two losses before it. you made it to um, uh, the uh, Elite Eight that year before the before the Louisville loss, which was uh, which was pretty one sided. But, you know, it's just sort of a what if team it was a really good team, uh, really good senior, uh, you know, uh, upperclassman led team with Seth Curry on it. And, you know, Mason Plumley and Ryan Kelly, you know, it's a really mature um, Duke team. And uh, just uh, unfortunate that they, uh, you know, had the injury to Kelly and then that led to the, the two seed in Louisville's region. So, you know, a really good Duke team that uh, caught a couple of bad breaks. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, definitely, as you said, an experienced team. That was maybe the last experienced team that we're going to have. I mean, well, now that the rule, even though they haven't really announced anything official, but I think the, the, the rule is changing back in 2022 for one and done, where they don't have to uh, come to college. So who knows how that'll work. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was an experienced team. And also Seth Curry, he had a shin issue. He re- I don't think he was able to practice. So I think that had an effect. Are you still there? Uh, yeah, sorry, I got. Okay, off. sorry, I heard I heard this beeping and I wasn't sure. I, okay, I so let me, let me. Yes, Seth Curry, he had a shin issue and he wasn't able to practice. And then when Coach K, he refers to our current team or the current team as an old school team. I think he's talking about the 2013 types and the difference is their experience compared to the current team. But still, the fact that we talk about how guys, you just have to have guys who can get a bucket. That 2013 team, I'm not really sure there were many guys like that, but they just, there was so much chemistry and they were so much, they they were just smart basketball players and they had been together for a while. Rashid Solomon could get a bucket and Quinn Cook at times, but I think it was just a really experienced, smart team. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, it's just sort of the one of the what if teams in, in Duke basketball history that was derailed by an injury. But um, you know, a really credible team and really helped build you know the 2010 title. Um, and then you know 2011 and 2012 didn't end how you want, and 2013 you know put them back I think up uh, a level. All right, 2014. So uh, Jabari comes in. They uh, they're really missing a defense of. Uh, a solid defensive front court. So Jabari is kind of forced into uh, playing center too often. Mm-hmm. All right. So they, uh, they lost uh, two pre new year's games, which really happens. They lost to Kansas um, with uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew Wiggins. Mm-hmm. And they lost to at Madison square garden to Zona. It was just, I mean, their offense was, was fun, but the, Rodney hood would kind of, he'd be hit or miss. And it was just an odd team. And uh, Kay, he was given Tyler Thornton just insane minutes the whole year. A lot of times over Cook and Rashid Suleiman. It just seemed like a weird, unnecessary mind game. Though Quinn seems to buy into his role by the end of the season. At least, uh, I mean, according to like how Kay usually likes his point guards to be spot up. I mean, there's certain situations. Like, I mean, Trey is different this year. But in, just in terms of the typical how point guards are used. But, I mean, big games in that season. Let's see here. There was... Uh, Rashid Suleiman got the bounce on a corner three for the winner against uh, Virginia mm-hmm. on January 13th. There was uh, March 8th, the uh, Jabari game against UNC. And there was uh, March 14th in the ACC tournament quarterfinal. Uh, Rodney Hood hits two free throws with under five seconds left. 
to win, and Tyler Thornton gets a big stop on D. But it was it was a struggle on defense, and the Mercer game, yeah, I thought that was much different from the Lehigh game. It was kind of, I don't know. I mean, it was just that that team was just ready to lose, it almost seemed. Yeah, it was uh, it was sort of a fragile team. You know, again, I don't want to get too much into the soft narrative piece of it, but that was always just one of those like really fragile teams because your 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 senior players on that team that should be leading were the guys like Josh Harrison and Tyler Thornton who who just weren't nearly as talented, couldn't really play those minutes. It's really hard, or it's harder when you're best players aren't also your leaders you know you just lose something in there so there was never really that one guy who could just grab him by the shirt collar you know and you really saw that in the carolina game they lost um in uh, chapel hill um and i think that was the year that had the snow out um where the original game was moved um but uh but you know you, you saw that as, as soon as things started going sideways like the team just sort of fell apart and you saw that throughout the year it was just you know, as a team that was a little bit under talented, you know, by Duke standards, um, you know, Jabari obviously was uh, an elite player, um, and uh, you know, Rodney Hood uh, certainly a very good player, a very good defensive player too. Um, but uh, but you just didn't have that surrounding talent. Like Quinn hadn't quite evolved into what he would be the next year. Um, Suleiman was a little hit and miss. You know, I think we were both big fans of Rashid Suleiman. You know, and it just it never quite came together. Um, you know, Dawkins was back that year. He had missed the previous year cause he had redshirted after, you know, his sister had uh, died in the, in the car accident back his freshman year. And I think he, he finally took some time to, you know, um, get things together. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a team where it just didn't quite fit. And, it, but it, you know, the root cause of all the thing, why it didn't fit, it wasn't so much the, um, offense of that team. It was, again, it was, uh, it was the defense, you know, with Jabari having to play center and Emil being an undersized um, center. So it was just, uh, again, Duke struggled to guard the pick and roll. And then once you get in the paint, there's, you know, there, there was no, you know, rim protection. There was no, uh, no one to step up. And it was just, it was difficult to watch um, defensively. I mean, that is probably the worst defensive Duke team I've ever seen. All right, that is not the most positive season to finish off on, but it is halfway through the decade, 2014. So after losing to Mercer in the first round, I think we all know what came next. We have a lot to look forward to for part two, starting off with 2015, going season by season throughout the rest of the decade. And then uh, you'll hear Ray and I give some all-decade Duke team, some superlatives, just some overall thoughts on the decades. A lot of fun. So I'm either going to uh, post that. I mean, there's a chance I might just post it later today. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure the benefit of waiting a day. But if not, I'll just post it again tomorrow morning to have a full day in between. And then uh, that that'll be enough time so Duke... Plays on Wednesday versus Georgia Tech. I will have a podcast hopefully on Friday. So you're looking at a three-podcast week, guys. I am uh, putting everything I can into this. So rate, review, show me that there is a demand for the most high-quality Duke uh, information, analysis possible. Because this is, this is you're not going to find it in what I bring you every single podcast anywhere else to so show me that it is uh it is in demand because it's a, it's a supply and demand world rate review 
and uh, help me out, guys. So, uh, tune in for part two of the 2010s Duke Decade podcast or episode, whatever you want to call it. And I will be talking to you soon. Thanks so much.